Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And as MPs head off for the sun or walking holidays or whatever they do in August, the sort of political themes inevitably continue seamlessly. Anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and inevitably Brexit. The anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party is like many British political crises. Uh, There is a sort of intangible core uh, at the centre of it all. It's quite hard to work out the precise allegations being made against Labour. Is the allegation that Corbyn himself is anti-Semitic? When I did a documentary about Corbyn for the BBC Uh, recently, we asked all our interviewees, including Margaret Hodge, whether they thought he, Corbyn, was personally anti-Semitic, and they all said without hesitation, no, including uh, Margaret Hodge, actually. Uh, She evidently changed her mind in the row over the definition of anti-Semitism, which blew up subsequently. Uh, But uh, a row over definition of anti-Semitism isn't proof of anti-Semitism. Then you get the other dynamic which is that some around Corbyn are I think genuinely convinced that the story is being partly to use that awful term weaponized by Corbyn's opponents either internal or outside the party. So they respond angrily because they genuinely think that and don't see much evidence of anti-Semitism and sometimes in their crass crude anger they are accused of being anti-Semitic and they become the anti-Semitic story even though they were uh, denying the anti-Semitism in the first place. Then there is all kinds of conflation. I read a a piece, I think in the Times the other day, which began with the quote from uh, Margaret Hodge, and uh, Margaret Hodge was angry and she deserves to be taken seriously. She's a formidable figure and a radical one. Um, And so you begin with that, but it's not uh, quite clear whether she the anger is based on anything more than the anger of the moment because as I said when I spoke to her she she didn't think Corbyn was uh, personally anti-Semitic um, uh, there was then in the times uh, the genuinely alarming uh, trend in the statistics of uh, rises of anti-Semitism throughout the UK quite a big rise over the last year, as I suspect there has been in other forms of racist attacks too. But that is an unfair conflation because it's not clear whether those attacks are anything to do with Corbyn supporters in the Labour Party. 
Then there followed a quote from somebody on Facebook writing something which was clearly anti-Semitic and he was described as a Corbyn supporter but the implication was that Corbyn himself was responsible for this quote and therefore directly culpable whereas in fact there are hundreds of thousands of these uh, Corbyn supporters out there. One of the consequences of having a mass membership party is that it is very hard to control in the era of social media and you're going to get some appalling people coming in um, as well as some dedicated good ones and the appalling people on social media can make mayhem. Uh, so there are all kinds of things going on and then there was the row about the fact that somebody in Corbyn's office said that they would be investigating both Margaret Hodge and another Labour MP who had got angry accusing Corbyn and others of anti-Semitism, um, implying that that investigation was wholly misjudged and it may well have been but an investigation into an MP is not evidence of anti-semitism. There have been so many of these kind of scandals which has a kind of essence of truth in them but then uh, that essence is lost in a wave of different only vaguely related stories to produce a sort of mountain of um, striking headlines. Oh, I, oh, I remember there's so many examples from actually Andrew Gilligan's original allegations against the government about um, sexing up the dossiers on WMD uh, before the war in Iraq. Uh, the original interviews on the Today programme, the allegations were so vague and imprecise, but I'm not going to go there today. Um, then there was the, I remember the huge row when Cherie Blair brought bought some flats in Bristol and she did it via the boyfriend of Carol Kaplan, who was her mate and sort of guru at the time, proved to be a bit dodgy, but didn't that didn't prove Cherie Blair was dodgy. Um, and yet that Fiorori. I remember Andrew Neil popping up on the Today programme saying there's a whiff of Watergate about this crisis. Um, and so on they go. Anyway, um, the fact that it has gone on so long shows that, um, and mind you, I'm adding to the sort of layers here, that uh, Corbyn's culpability is partly a failure to kill the story off, one that is obviously damaging. You just find ways of killing it off. Um, and he has failed to do that. But in making that observation, I don't make the claim that therefore he is anti-Semitic. He has is, he is failed in an act of leadership in killing off a story that is, uh, first of all, diverting attention from other things that a party should be about, but also, of course, is deeply damaging. As for Brexit, on and on it goes. Uh, May even breaks off her walking holiday to go and see President Macron in France. I hope she has a nice time because, you know, she likes those walking holidays and she's lost a day of it. Um, but um, I have some doubts as to whether these one-to-one -one meetings uh, will make a huge difference. It was the mistake that David Cameron made in his negotiation, uh, renegotiation before before the referendum in 2016. He thought that if he met uh, Merkel separately and then the leaders of the Czech Republic, the, uh, uh, you know, whatever, all the, the Eastern European 
EU countries and others, he would be able to persuade them of uh, a case. And in fact, they basically acted collectively then, and I suspect they will do now. Anyway, as you're lying on the beach thinking about Brexit, I'm sure you'll want some more Brexit fun. And this is genuinely fun on one level, deeply seriously serious on another. I'm playing sometimes in August um, some of the great events that uh, uh, my friend and colleague Ian Birrell and I hosted at the Politics Festival at King's Place. And one of the events somebody afterwards said was uh, one of the best political events he had uh, ever attended. Uh, now that partly reflected his views, I suspect. He's a Remainer. Um, but he's attended many, many political gatherings, I can tell you. Um, and it was the session with Andrew Adonis. Adonis is interesting because although he's in a very different political place, on one level, as an interviewee, and the way he can work an audience, he reminds me a bit of Tony Benn because he uses historic uh, context, he's funny, and he gives people hope. I always remember Ben saying that my purpose in life is to give people hope. That's what a politician can and should do. And Andrew Donis, uh, in putting the case for a second referendum with such passion, he would, he would call it the people's referendum, and, and forensic justification, I think probably gave this audience, uh, or those who want it, uh, considerable hope. Um, he's funny as well, and as I say, has the great ability to contextualise. This, if you like, uh, needs to be placed next to the one that I've already broadcast with Keir Starmer, Labour's uh, actual uh, shadow Brexit secretary. Uh, who Andrew Adonis uh, disagrees with on many, many fronts. So if you haven't heard that, you can go back and listen and compare and contrast. Um, before I play it, I'm going to add, because I've got to, um, do come along to my live rock and roll politics show if you're at the Edinburgh Festival, or if you're not, come along anyway, travel up or down to, to it. Um, it's on for the last two weeks every day, a different show every day, and tickets are available on the Edinburgh Fringe website. Um, so hope to see some of you there. Here from the Politics Festival, I should say it took place the day after the big demonstration in London calling for a referendum, a so-called people's vote. Um, so Andrew, it was the following morning, came along to the Politics Festival and was in mesmerising form. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, thank you very much for coming this sunny Sunday morning. Our first guest for today really needs no introduction at all. Andrew Adonis was a prominent cabinet minister, uh, uh, worked closely with Tony Blair in number 10, then a cabinet minister under Gordon Brown. But more recently, um, he has focused a huge amount of his energy and firepower on fighting Brexit. He's been on a listening tour around the UK. He tweets about once every 10 minutes on Brexit. And here, ladies and gentlemen, fresh from yesterday's march in London, Andrew Adonis. <laughs> So, Andrew, thanks so much for coming along. You're looking remarkably fresh, considering all the time you've 
are Invig pushing... Invig invigorated. <laughs> yeah, I, I so tell us about the march. Um, probably <coughs> some people in the audience were there, but conjure up why you think it was a moment of significance. <coughs> Well, the only way we're going to get a people's vote, which is the only way I think we're going to stop Brexit, is by the people speaking. And the people can speak in a number of ways. They spoke to some extent in the election when Theresa May lost her majority. There's been increasing evidence through opinion polls that opinion is shifting, both in people's views on the incompetence of the Brexit negotiations. 70% you know, of Leavers and Remainers think that the negotiations are being handled badly, but also in people's views on whether there should be a referendum, which is two to one. But we're a democracy, and people power matters in a whole lot of different ways. And getting 100,000 people on the streets of London yesterday for an extremely good-natured but a, a, a extremely clear expression of the views of, um, of, of so many people is important. And I hope very much, with the help of people in this hall and many others, that before the key Brexit votes in Parliament in November, we'll get a million on the streets of London. We've got to make it absolutely clear to this government that for many of us, leaving Europe is not something that we are going to do without a massive democratic struggle to seek to stop it. And a million on the streets of London demanding a people's vote, I think even Theresa May might... Um, might hear that from uh, 10 Downing Street. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Measuring, we'll come on to the substance of Brexit in a minute, but measuring the impact of marches is quite interesting. I mean, the, the million that demonstrated against Iraq, I'm sure, mm. on one level, alarmed your friend Tony Blair. But by then, of course, if he had known a million was mm. going to march, I, I bet he'd have done things differently. But he was trapped by that point, wasn't mm. he? There was no way out of his route towards that war by that point. He had committed to Bush and he, every, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Isn't that, however much we might wish it to change, the same with May? She wouldn't have liked seeing that yesterday. She would be terrified by a million. But isn't she on a course now from which there is no escape mm. for her? Well, I think there's a big difference between the two because I, I know Tony Blair extremely well. Tony believed in, I mean, whatever you think about Iraq, he believed in it. I mean, he genuinely thought it was the right thing at a number of different levels. He thought uh, WMD, he thought uh, relations with the United States, he thought um, uh, the word of a British prime minister, all, a whole, for a whole number of reasons he believed in it. And I don't, because I remember the day very vividly, because Tony flew up to Edinburgh so as not to be in London on the day of yeah. the, the march. Yeah. I remember yeah. he didn't want to be in number 10. <laughs> well, Were you with him that day? Uh, 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 no, I wasn't with him that day, but I do remember the discussions yeah. about where it was sensible for him to be on the day of the demo, <laughs> and he did not think being in number 10 Downing Street was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, there's a big difference with Theresa May. It's vital to understand. Theresa May does not believe in Brexit. Mm. It's vital to understand she was a Remainer in the referendum campaign, just, but nonetheless, if you read her speech, the one speech she gave, it is a very cogent explanation of the Remain case, that on balance our trade is better protected inside and outside the EU, that our security and defence is definitely better protected inside than outside, and she lays very great emphasis on security because of her, her experience as, uh, as Home uh, Secretary, and uh, that in terms of dealing with sudden shocks and crises, we're much better off uh, in partnership with the French and the Germans than we are on our own. All of those arguments are just as powerful today in 2018 as they were in 2016. And when you see Theresa May speak, as, um, as, as I do from uh, time to time about it, when she's asked the question directly, do you think the country will be better off with Brexit, which after all is the job, is the responsibility which as Prime Minister that you have over and above all others to see that you leave the country in a better state than you find it. 
what she always says in answer to it is not yes. She says, the people voted for Brexit. We have an instruction from the people, and we therefore have to deliver it. Well, I don't want to be led by prime ministers and political leaders who simply say, because people voted for something narrowly two years ago, which I know to be wrong, I regard my job as to be a kind of post officer to implement it without seeking to question it, to lead public opinion, and to seek to change it. Her responsibility is to lead the country to the destination that it thinks is correct, not transient majorities and, in particular, pressure from the far right of her own party, which constantly threatens to destabilise her if she changes. Can you imagine Churchill, after, after Munich, saying, well, I believe that it was all, it's all a really terrible mistake, this. It could end up in a war in a year's time. Our whole security is being undermined. Uh, but that nice Mr Chamberlain, he's, um, he's done the deal. I mean... Uh, the people have spoken. It's very popular. I mean, all the opinion polls then had Munich was about 80% popular. So I'm, you know, I'm afraid we can't revisit this. I mean, leaders are there to lead. In a democracy, you have to lead with consent. That is the whole interplay in democracy between leadership and, uh, and, and the democratic world. But so, the one thing that uh, people will never forgive this generation of politicians for is if this thing ends up, as I believe it will, in an immense crisis in five to ten years' time, it will not be good enough for whoever is um, prime minister then and Theresa May to say, well, we knew it was all going to be a complete... Uh, if I can use Boris Johnson's term, uh, F up. We all knew it was going to be a complete <laughs> catastrophe, uh, but nonetheless, it's what people voted for in, in a referendum on the 23rd of June 2016. Now, what part of your initiative has been to persuade your, the leadership of your party to take uh, a more robust mm. line on the referendum and Brexit more generally? Uh, in, a, in a way that was almost cinematic, as you were marching, we had Keir Starmer... Mm here, mm. uh, uh, on this stage. Well, he should have been there, of course. Uh, well, you think he should have... Mm. No, this is his argument. Uh, you, you know it, but let me put... But it, you, you had to have somebody on, on stage, so, I mean... <laughs> but I, could, I could have provided somebody else for you. Uh, Nigel, he would have come, I'm sure. Nigel mm. Farage, yeah. yeah. I mean, next time uh, you need to see that when we have these big demos, you are have you, him on. Are you comparing Keir to uh, <laughs> Nigel Farage? Um, anyway, this was his argument. Um, first of all, on the referendum. He, he says this. They haven't ruled it out. But at this point, it would be wrong for the leadership to do so. Um, there might be space in the future, but not yet. And one of the reasons, we gave two reasons. One, he said, look, we would need 20 Tories plus to back it in the House of Commons. We couldn't even get a few to back their own rebel amendment last week on the meaningful vote. That he, he didn't expect Dominic Grieve to vote against his own amendment. Given that it would be wrong for him and Jeremy Corbyn to spend all their energy on something that they would then lose in the House of Commons, a vote on a second referendum. Two, he wonders whether there's <clears throat> enough time. He now thinks this deal will not come to the Commons before December. If it was voted down, there might be space for a referendum. But we're meant to be out of this thing by March. So, so what do you say to those... Those were his reasons why he wasn't on the march with you yesterday. Uh, well, uh, Keir's saying he's not ruling out that he and Jeremy might at some stage lead. Th their job is to lead. I mean, the idea that we have a political leader who's not ruling out the fact that they might actually lead, I think, <laughs> I think is, 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 is catastrophic for the country. Let, let's be clear. And the reason I don't mince my words is I'm very good. I can be a politician and mince my words when need be. But these issues are, to be blunt, they are life and death issues for us as a country, the decisions we take over the next nine months. So this is no time at all for, um, for, for playing the political game and being very nice 
to one's friends when you think you're, they're doing the wrong thing. But let's take those two parts of what Keir said. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, let's be clear, Dominic was the Grand Old Duke of York. He marched up to the top of the hill and he marched down again. It was very, very funny. I was sitting in the <laughs> gallery of the House of, of Commons. Commons. Were you watching Well, the, the reason yeah. I had to sit in the gallery of the House of Commons, I, I very rarely do it. Yeah. But because the government is constantly, constantly manipulating business at the moment in order to try and undermine the opponents of Brexit, they announced only in the morning that they were bringing the European Union withdrawal bill, which we were debating, the amendments to it, which is the Grieve Amendment, yeah. they were going to bring that back to the Lords in the evening, regardless of what happened, because what they wanted to do if, was to try and bounce it through on the hop. Yeah. Um, the problem was that there'll be no Hansard report. I mean, this is a, an extraordinary way to run the country. It meant that we were expected to meet to debate what the Commons had done and whether we were going to insist on our amendments and send it back again. It's this, it's this process called ping pong. Yeah. Without having any knowledge of what the House of Commons had done. Now, of course, I made a big fuss about that in the Lords, but the whips had manipulated. So, so I had to be in the gallery of the House of Commons to watch the debate in order to know what had happened. <laughs> now, I found myself sitting next to the Duke of Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> the Duke of Wellington, by the way, is magnificent. The Duke of Wellington, who is the great, great, great grandson of the of the uh, of the of the first Duke, uh, he's by the way still owns a huge amount of Portugal. I mean, and he uh, uh, and he's um, he's a former he's a wonderfully pro-European. He's a former MEP. He was a oh, Tory right. MEP oh, yeah, a for Tory many MEP? years. He's passionately pro-European. Um, and uh, he's also very resolute. And as soon as Dominic, it became clear in Dominic's speech where he was going, uh, he said, well, I, I, probably, I better not say what he said to me. Now, that wouldn't be fair because that was a private remark. Anyway, I said to him, when we next do this, I hope we're led by the Duke of Wellington and not the Duke of York. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there was... The, the, uh, so to the point but, that Dominic Grieve and others could not be relied upon if there was a vote on a referendum now, so he says he should, Keir Starmer should be spending his energy on trying to manipulate events towards a soft Brexit rather than a yeah, referendum. But, but sorry, sorry, let's come back to it. The right yeah. thing for the country, of course, is to stop this and have a people's vote and all of that. Yeah. So what uh, Keir and Jeremy should be doing is implacable in defence of that cause. Until they're implacable, part of the reason why we've had such difficulty with these Tory rebels is all the way through, they've never been quite sure whether Labour was or wasn't going to be voting with them. Right. Now, it is true that then when it came to the crunch on this vote, uh, uh, Dominic uh, didn't vote for it, and uh, that's absolutely true. Six Conservatives did, a number abstained. We had a problem on our side because we had a number who voted with the Conservatives. Yeah, that's the other point too, you made, which, a which is with your side as well. Yeah, yeah but, but that's part of leadership is leading your own people as, as, as well as helping lead the other side. But when abstract from all of that and the yes. vote at the end, on the Dominic Grieve Amendment, which Dominic Grieve voted against, was only 16. That is 16 in a chamber of 650 in a hung parliament with the weakest political leadership that I have seen in my lifetime on the biggest issue, with, as I know, a number of ministers who may resign if things don't go well in the negotiations. Who, I mean, there's a lot of public-spirited people on the Conservative side on this. So the idea that Keir should say that because we lost one vote, having failed to lead for the best part of the previous year, and uh, Dominic Grieve didn't do what he should have done, that therefore we shouldn't do what we should do either, is, I'm afraid, just as kind of... Uh, let me choose my words carefully... Uh, is not rising to the level of events, <laughs> firstly. Uh, <laughs> if I made Very myself, diplomatic uh, phrasing. If, if I made myself sufficiently clear. Yeah, yeah, now, on yeah. the second point about time, time. Yeah. well, the likelihood is now that she'll present the treaty in November, 
But it could be December, it could be January. It's true, that's quite close to March. However, as John Kerr, Lord Kerr, who was the guy who wrote Article 50 and knows all about these things, has said, if we ask the European Council, which essentially means the European Commission, Macron and Merkel, because they're the people who take the decision, if we ask them for an extension of the Article 50 period purely for the purposes of holding a referendum, not for further negotiations and all of that, but for a referendum, then by the conventions of the European Council... Uh, they will grant it. And the reason is this, because, and this is, goes to the fundamental purpose of the European Union, the European Union is a club of democracies. That is its hallmark. And a convention of the European Council is that where member states need longer to ratify treaties uh, in order uh, to meet their own democratic requirements, they automatically grant it. In many cases, I think the Maastricht Treaty took something like four or five years mm. for all of the member states to, to ratify because it was so complicated and, and controversial. So they would, in his view, certainly grant us an extension, certainly, for the purposes of holding a referendum. So if we go to them in the parliamentary vote, if uh, there's a vote for the people's vote in the House of Commons and say we need to hold this referendum in good order. It needs to be done with a proper campaign and all that, so it should be held in the summer. And we ask the European Council for an extension until next summer. His view is that they will certainly grant it. And I have been told similarly, privately, by European leaders, I won't say which ones, but that they're very clear on this. The significant thing is that Keir, who is a very sharp guy, who will have had the same conversations, and who knows that, didn't say that to you yesterday. On the contrary, he said this was an argument against. Mm. Well, I just allow you to draw your own conclusions from that <laughs> statement. I don't think I need to say anything more about that at all, except to assert very strongly that Keir knows that we would get an extension of Article 50 for the purposes of holding a referendum. He knows that. As, as someone who, um, you're a historian, you follow the rhythms of politics so closely. If that context were to arise, somehow or other, that there is... Uh, a referendum, we get an extension. What would be the domestic political context in which that happens? In other words, it's very hard to see Theresa May doing it. Um, would there have to be an election? Uh, would the Tory party split when someone from their side asks for an extension and a referendum? I mean, how do you see the domestic political context that brings that about? Well, what I'm assuming will happen, but, you know, as, uh, uh, as uh, another general said on another occasion, the best laid plans don't survive the first engagement with the enemy, so who knows. What I'm assuming will happen is that when the Prime Minister presents her treaty to Parliament in November, someone, I thought it might be Dominic Grieve, but that's now looking uh, unlikely, but someone, I hope a Conservative, a prominent Conservative, I hope, maybe by then a prominent recent uh, Minister who's resigned, will move an amendment to her resolution, because she'll have to table a resolution for the treaty to be approved. She said that already. That's the procedure that's already agreed. I'm hoping that uh, someone will table an amendment simply to refer it to a referendum. Not, not to seek to uh, 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 vote against the treaty, but I mean, the, a very neat amendment. I could draft it for you very simply, saying they would only take effect, this treaty, after the people have spoken in a mm. referendum. Mm. And once that resolution is then passed, then because the executive is the executive, and by the way, the reason that our government is called the executive is because its job is to execute the will of Parliament. You might not understand that for some of the things that ministers have been saying with this new kind of doctrine of executive sovereignty <laughs> they've been trying to get going recently, but that is why it is called the executive. So when Dr Liam Fox said last week, that just because Parliament says something, that doesn't mean to say we have to do it. 
Um, uh, ex uh, ex excuse me, we're a parliamentary democracy. Yeah. We don't have one election and then we have dictatorship for five years. That isn't how we run this country. I mean, he may not have noticed, but I mean, he needs to learn a bit of constitutional law. So uh, what should then happen is that the government will then hold the referendum. And I think that that is what will happen, because all of the alternatives for Theresa May are worse. Though she'll make all kinds of bellicose statements about motions of confidence and elections and all that before, in order to, to, to dragoon the Dominic Greaves into voting against a referendum, if she actually loses that vote, she only has two other alternatives. One is to uh, seek to call an election anyway, well, that isn't entirely straightforward under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. It's a very difficult and technical process, which I could go into if you want, but it's not clear that she would necessarily have a majority for that. But in any case, to call an election, which could lead to Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister within three weeks, is that what she's going to do? Bring the whole House down? Because she will not allow the people to speak on her own Brexit treaty. That's option one. Option two is that she resigns herself on the grounds that she's, um, uh, she feels undermined by this and the Conservatives have to provide another leader. Well, uh, we, Theresa May isn't very good at resigning, by the way. There are sort of three or four occasions <laughs> when she, she, she could and probably should have yeah. resigned. So, yeah. I mean, she almost certainly should in after the uh, election, after the election, because yeah. she'd so clearly lost it. But yeah. she clung on to her job then. Uh, people's history, by the way, and all my experience of life, what they've done in the past almost always is the best guide to what they're going to do in the future. So yes. what do I think that she will do in this circumstance? I think she'll make all kinds of bellicose and um, authoritarian statements before as to what she's going to do. But when she's actually faced with having lost the vote, she will say, well, the House of Commons has spoken and we'll have a referendum. Right. Well, let's let's see how the, these things will unfold. As as I've mentioned before, you're you're a historian. You've got two books out on Brexit. One coming out shortly. The one here, which you're going to sign afterwards. Um, but the the second one is called Half In, Half Out, isn't it? And uh, it's about every prime minister's approach to the European Union since we joined. And different people have written different chapters. Including Steve, uh, I should say. Steve has written a chapter on Theresa May. I've done one so on Theresa May. I, I had quite um, difficult, really, because you know, it's not exactly the past, is it? But you, <laughs> you did Harold Wilson and Tony Blair. Yeah. I haven't read Andrew's Harold Wilson. His one on Tony Blair is absolutely fascinating. But the reason I, I, I mention it is the title in itself tells us something, doesn't it? That at no point since we joined in 73 has Britain been at ease with membership of the European Union. Mm. And you brilliantly chronicle arguably the most pro-European Prime Minister of the lot, Tony mm. Blair, and the twists and turns in his mm. period and his ambiguity towards the Euro and so on. And, and each one, the same themes come up again and again, Labour and Tory. Now, there must be a reason for this, that the constant theme in British politics in relation to Europe is internal turbulence within each party. And, and, and I wonder whether that is one of the reasons why we're going out, that neither mm. party has been really at ease with the European Union ever. Yeah. Well, what's very clear to me from um, engaging with the 14 uh, uh, very uh, distinguished authors, uh, including uh, Steve on Mrs May, but Chris Patton on, on John Major, David Owen on, on, on Jim Callaghan, who's his foreign secretary, Nicholas Soames on uh, Winston Churchill, his uh, grandson, uh, uh, David Faber, Hal Macmillan's grandson on on Macmillan. It's it's a, it's a very it's a very interesting lineup. What's very clear to me, 
reading the book is two things. Firstly, that actually the individuals matter a lot. Mm. The crucial mistake we make, the crucial mistake we make in Europe was not to become a member of the European coal and steel community back in 1951, because that was the beginning of the European Union. And the decision not to join the European coal and steel community, which became the common market, which became the European community, then the European Union, goes all the way through, was essentially Atlee's, or rather to be more precise, it was Atlee and Bevin, to get together. Yeah. Now, Atlee and Bevin uh, were very strong English nationalists who had an extremely um, negative view of... Um, of the continent. Mm. You know, Attlee himself mm. was to be a fierce opponent of Harold Macmillan when Macmillan made the application in 1961. Yeah. It is very, very clear to me, and I say this as a Labour politician who's a great admirer of Attlee, by the way. I think his government was in most respects excellent, but nobody gets everything right. And um, it's very clear to me, if Churchill had won the 1945 election, and uh, without giving too many secrets away, the chapter that Nicholas Soames uh, has written is, 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 does a thought experiment as to what would have happened if Churchill had been returned in 1945. If Churchill had been there, I think it's almost certain we would have been a founder member of the European Coal and really? Steel Community. Uh, yeah, almost certain. If you read Churchill's Zurich speech, yeah. uh, his whole approach to Europe, he would have wanted Britain, and it's also his whole style of, of, of politics and leadership, he would have wanted Britain to lead, not to be led. People say, but ah, Churchill didn't do that when he became Prime Minister in 1951. Well, there are two, three things that need to be borne in mind about that. The first is the key decisions on the European Coal and Steel Committee had already been taken. He opposed them as leader of the opposition. It's very significant that he did. He was in favour of joining from, as leader of the opposition. But two other things are very important. The first thing is, in 1951, Churchill only thinks he's going to be Prime Minister for a year. And the only thing he wants to accomplish is a summit with Stalin and Truman to prevent what he thinks is going to be the Third World was. So he was prepared to trade everything else in order to, to, to get the summit. And his foreign secretary, who he delegated all of the other decisions to, was Anthony Eden, who was also a profound Eurosceptic. So at the key moment when we were taking these decisions, we had essentially two deeply Eurosceptic prime ministers. Eden, by the way, also fiercely opposes Macmillan's application to join the European Union in 1951. So it, history matters, individuals matter, leaders matter. My own view is if we had a better leader than Theresa May, who had a better sense of national interest, we might not be in this mess today. What they might well have said the, after the referendum was, look, the British people did make this vote. Uh, they didn't vote to be poorer. The right thing for us to do is, is in the short term, to have some arrangement like Norway and to suck it and see. So we don't wrench ourselves out of our key political and economic relations with Europe and the institutions, but we suck it and see. Instead of which, for reasons which you, you describe in, in your chapter, she decided to put out of everything. Mm. So leaders really matter. But the other thing that came through really clearly to me, which I think is a tragedy of our relations with our European uh, partners since 1945, is every time there's been a move towards greater European cooperation, which is bold, so not just a little thing, but a bold mm. thing, like setting up the cold and steel community, the common market, the exchange rate mechanism, then the euro. We have always thought that these useless continentals will never get their act together. 
They never actually managed to do it. We are so superior to them. I mean, the idea that the French and the Germans, and particularly the Italians, the idea they're ever going to get their act together, they'll actually be able to do it, is, of course, a complete nonsense. There are all these memos going around in 1950 and 51 about how it's... Uh, the idea that the French will ever open their agricultural markets to the Germans. Can you imagine the French allowing the Germans to export wine to France? I mean, this is just a complete nonsense. That's not going to happen. The same with the European... Uh, uh, the Treaty of Rome in 1956... Uh, Eden says it'll never happen. He says, I know the French and the Germans. He said, the idea you can get them in the same room together, let alone they're actually going to agree to create a single market is for the birds. The same happens in the 1970s when my great hero, Roy Jenkins, is, is instrumental in the construction of the exchange rate mechanism. Callaghan and Thatcher both think it won't happen. And I was there with Tony Blair took the key decisions not to engage at all in the creation of the euro. And it's an open question what he would have done if the euro was up and functioning. It's an open question, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what he might have decided. However, he took the view, all the way through from becoming leader of the Labour Party in 1994, through to the circulation of notes and coins, which was the, um, the moment when the euro became a fact of life in 2001, that it wasn't going to happen, or that it would be delayed, because it was such a big set of decisions that had to be taken, that there was, you know, the idea that they were going to be able to, the, it was one thing to have this, I remember him saying to me on one occasion, it's one thing to have this treaty, it's quite another thing for there actually to be a currency. And as I say in the chapter, he believed to the very late stage that even if the currency went ahead, he might be able to persuade uh, uh, Merkel um, uh, to, and, uh, to delay it, so that we could come in at a later stage. Now, the, the hubris of that in terms of our relations with our continental friends, and of course, and, and since then, by the way, we spent the whole of the 2010s and, and Cameron believing it was going to collapse. Remember, mm -hmm. part of the reason why uh, we shouldn't worry too much about, um, uh, about Brexit and all of that is that the euro was bound to collapse. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it was, there was a great euro crisis. Remember, uh, Cameron was giving big lectures to the French and the Germans in 2012 and 13 as to what they needed to do to keep a currency going, which we had decided not to play any part in. You know, and, and, that, and then, by the way, he needed that same relationship with Chancellor Merkel two years later when he wanted to negotiate his emergency break. Is it any great surprise, after being lectured by the British Prime Minister on what the Germans needed to do to put their own house in order, she wasn't sort of overwhelmingly sympathetic when Cameron came and told her what he needed in order to keep things going yeah. in Britain. No, so we have so always us, yeah. massively, massively misplayed European politics. Yeah. And part of the reason is we've been, and you know, these films, uh, uh, Darkest Hour and Dunkirk, we've had this, we've been living in a kind of never-never land of 1940 when mm. we saved everybody from everything. Uh, we are brilliant, everyone else is useless, and uh, <laughs> the idea that we should defer in any way to any continental politician, even if they happen to be the President of France or the Chancellor of Germany, We've got to get over that as a country. That has done untold damage to us, this mm. hubristic, arrogant, overweening approach to our European friends and partners mm. for 70 years now. And uh, the, one of the best things about this demo, I've, I thought yesterday, is I've never seen so many European flags in, in, in London. We have got to have a fundamentally different, more balanced and more cooperative relationship with our European friends, and it needs to start now. Great. Right. <laughs> We'll open up uh, to questions in, in in one minute. So, so one minute, Andrew. Very briefly, you, you've worked with such a range of politicians. Give us a brief pen portrait. Tony Blair, he, he brought you into number 10 to run the policy unit. And I think you still see him mm. quite often. 
what's, what's your assessment of him now? And is he depressed that whenever he intervenes, people say, no one's listening to you? Is he a, a brief, very brief pen portrait of this person who you've known yeah. for many, many years well? Well, I've never met, because I didn't know Clinton, I met Clinton once, so I've never worked with or close to a politician who has more natural political flair than Tony Blair. I mean, just the most amazing charisma, the most amazing intuitive understanding of where what he called Middle England, what the English middle class, the English middle class, what the English middle class was thinking at any one time, and also the most amazing ability to sell to them change. I mean, one of the things, because there are some things that the Labour government did, which I know are very controversial with my friends on the left, but let's be clear, Tony persuaded the English middle class to... to to pay a significant tax rise in order to reconstitute the NHS and the education system. No one else has done that, apart from Attlee and a bit of Wilson in the early years, since 1945. So he had enormous um, uh, abilities. Uh, it's very difficult being an ex-prime minister. There's no ex-prime minister who's been greatly popular no. or has managed to work out how you play this role in a way that still enables you to provide national leadership. Uh, no one has done it. Um, uh, I mean, Gladstone, who's my other great hero, Gladstone famously said that ex-Prime Ministers, he said, are like uh, boats untethered in a harbour causing damage to all the passing shipping. <laughs> uh, I think that, that just about sums it up, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a good image. And, 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 and briefly, you know him less well, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, your, your take on Corbyn uh, as a, uh, a should, leader? Let me say, Jeremy and I, uh, uh, we get on extremely well. Partly because I, I was in Islington, I mean, an Islingtonian, so I was in his constituency for many years. So I know him very well from that. But also, Jeremy and I are both train spotters. Indeed, <laughs> Jer Jer Jeremy, Jeremy, I have to let you into a secret. Jeremy is more of a train spotter than I am. He subscribes to Railway Magazine, whereas I, I, whereas I only buy it at W. H. Smith when I've got a long train journey and need, and need something to read. <laughs> Jeremy, the detail with which Jeremy knows railway timetables is significantly greater, greater than mine. So we have a, a, we have a very, very strong bond because you, know, you have to understand that amongst men, it doesn't happen so much with women, but amongst men, they divide into those who are and aren't train spotters. <laughs> and Jeremy and I are on the train spotters' side, <laughs> and there are a lot of people on the other side. Uh, and so I will defend him to the hills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no, uh, Diane Abbott said to me, you know all these rallies he goes on, it's not because he gets a kick out of all the cheers, mm. he just likes the train mm. journeys to all different places. <laughs> um, OK, let's put the lights up and have um, some questions, please. Um, uh, OK, can we have a bit lighter? I can't, so we can see a bit more clearly. Uh, on the second row, and then uh, we'll go over to this side. Um, if we take about three in a go, if that's all right, because there's lots of people. A democratic vote depends on a well-informed public and truth-telling politicians. So as none of that applied for the referendum, why has the Labour Party been so craven and pathetic in sticking to the people's vote? <coughs> and why are you and others still in the Labour Party? Okay, pause, pause that one. Um, we're going to go over to this side and then uh, the lady over with her hand up on on the left, but let's, so that, if the mic, I think you've got it. Yeah. Do you want the question, next question now? Yeah. Yes, please. Um, assuming we do get, uh, so assuming May gets some kind of crappy deal that pretty much pleases nobody, she puts that to the people and we get a referendum, what's the alternative? Because the hard mm. Brexiters mm. would say, you know, let's reject the deal mm. and just leave with no deal, mm. as they're saying today, and obviously 
people on, on the other side, on your side, will say, let's just cancel Brexit altogether. So is it a three-way referendum, or and, and if so, how, how on earth does that work? Okay, that's uh, both great questions. And I think a mic is, yes. With you. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could give us any indication when the next march is likely to be so we can get it in our diaries because some of us have to come quite a long way to get here. You've come down from Durham, haven't you? Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, for, the, for yesterday's march and mm. this festival. Uh, mm. Great uh, question. Mm. We'll, we'll do another round in a second. Mm. So you've expressed yeah. not only, you know, you've been quite critical of Keir Starmer and so on, why, why, didn't you, why don't you just set up your own party and go for it? Um, um, I think that was the essence of... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, what was the essence? Well, oh. it, was an, it wasn't a democratic vote. The Labour Party was behaved like idiots. Mm. So why, and why have you been stuck with... The idiots who have some craven idea about the Tories are right, it's a democratic vote, etc. Okay. Yeah. Well, can I, can I say... Uh, the majority opinion in the Labour Party is pro-European. The overwhelming majority of Labour Party members are, and the great majority of Labour MPs are. So why should I have to leave my party because I'm in the majority? I mean, I, that's not... That, yeah, ob obviously there is this... No, no, no the, we've been perfectly honest, those of us who are, who are pro-European. It, it is true uh, that there is a dialogue between us and the leadership... That, which is going to be ongoing. It's going to be ongoing between now and the autumn. But I'm absolutely not leaving my party because I'm in the majority. Indeed, even when you're in a minority in a party, you need to think very, very carefully about leaving because the, um, in all organisations, sometimes you win arguments, sometimes you lose arguments. I am a democratic socialist. Why should I be forced out of the Labour Party? Because my particular thing I support at any given time doesn't have majority view. And also, I have been... Because um, I, I, you, you try to take a mature view of this. For a long part of my membership of the Labour Party, I was in the majority position. Tony Blair was leader. We had big majorities inside the party behind us. Now, on some issues, but only on some issues, of which Europe is the biggest one, I'm, at, I'm, uh, I'm in a different position from the leadership. The right thing to do is to argue the case strongly, to seek to win it, so that we can then win it in Parliament. Because if the Labour Party splits, the only people who will gain are the Tories. And in the narrow issue of Brexit, that makes Brexit an absolute certainty. If the Labour Party splits, Brexit is an absolute certainty. Because what will then happen is that the group of MPs around Jeremy Corbyn, maybe including Keir, I mean, you had him here yesterday, will then vote through Brexit. And they'll have no constraints at all because they won't have to conciliate anyone else inside the party at all. So that makes Brexit a certainty. The only chance we've got of stopping Brexit is that the Labour Party, in a united way, comes to support the people's vote. And that's going to involve a big and tense and difficult debate inside the Parliamentary Labour Party, but that is what's ongoing at the moment. And then we get the, the Dominic Greaves and the next 30 Tory MPs. We need to be very clear-sighted about that. The moment we depart from that, Brexit happens. What's the question? Just now, here, before you go on that, there's a discussion here this yeah. afternoon. I know you're dead against it about whether there should be a new political party. Okay. Yeah. Oh, by the way, question. I should say, I, I, I do, I, I've been in a... You know, I, on my 18th birthday, I joined the SDP. I know, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I spent a long time in it. Uh, and it was only when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party that I joined the Labour Party. Uh, no, it's now quite a long time ago, because I'm getting quite old. So, it's, uh, uh, so I've been in it now for, uh, whatever it is, uh, 25 years, the Labour Party. But I was for 10 years before that, while I was a student and afterwards, uh, in the SDP. The idea that segmenting political groupings into ever smaller groupings 
where you agree with people is the way of achieving political power, is a complete misreading of how our democracy works. What you need to do in our democracy is to aggregate opinion, not divide it. The other thing, by the way, which I just tell you, just as a piece of advice which you can give to people this afternoon, is that, um, is that uh, when you have very small parties, personalities and divisions on personalities become very, very yeah. significant. Yeah. Uh, it's a big problem in a party where you know everybody. <laughs> it's much better when you're debating and arguing about issues in parties rather than personalities. Uh, the SDP, which is a party that only had six MPs and 60,000 members, they fell out in every direction by the end. <laughs> they did. And the figure yeah. of David Owen, I can assure you, he was about as divisive as it was possible, and he ended up leading as leader of the SDP, leading a minority of his party yeah. against the wish the of the majority to do this terrible thing of merging with the, with the, with the Liberals, Liberals, even though there yeah. was no space for two. two. So don't go there. The referendum. Now, again, there's a great uh, political contract being played at the moment. Theresa May simply asserts, you know, it's this government sovereignty thing again, she simply asserts that the only alternative to Brexit, her Brexit treaty... When she, when she puts it to Parliament, is leaving with no treaty. That's not true at all. It is a... Let me be very blunt. That is a straightforward lie. If her treaty is rejected, Parliament will decide what happens. If there is a referendum on her treaty, Parliament will decide what the question is. We are... I'm sorry to have to keep repeating it, but it needs repeating in the current climate. We are a parliamentary democracy. If a referendum is held, Parliament will set the question. And I can tell you with, a, 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 with an absolute certainty that if there's a majority for a people's vote for a referendum on that treaty, the question that Parliament will put to the people is, do you want the Prime Minister's treaty or do you want to stay in the European Union? Because they are the only two credible choices that will face the country. It's not going to be possible in the, in, in a, in the short period of time between then and leaving to negotiate a new treaty. And there's almost no one in the House of Commons, apart from Jacob Rees-Mogg, and, um, and David Davis, I don't think he even believes this, Jacob Rees-Mogg and um, uh, one or two other nutcases on the, uh, in, the, in the ERG, and not even most of the ERG, who believe that we could actually leave next March with no treaty at all. Because let's be clear, if we leave with no treaty, planes don't fly, there are 50-mile tailbacks to Dover, there isn't enough food in the shops, there isn't going to be fuel in the pumps, because we have no regime for our trade and all the economic relations we have with the continent without it. So that is not actually a proposition which any responsible House of Commons could put to the people. So if there's a people's vote, the choice will be the Prime Minister's treaty or staying in. And that is a much, much clearer choice than we had two years ago. Because the problem two years ago is that nobody knew two years ago what Brexit was. And the Prime Minister didn't elucidate that much afterwards when she said Brexit means Brexit. Well, when you've got a blancmange, saying that blancmange means blancmange doesn't actually make it a, a, a more substantial proposition. And that's the problem we've been dealing with all along. Uh, the next oh, March... Well, I don't know oh, you, but I, yeah. will, I will see... We will advertise it as soon as we've got one. I think after yesterday, it can't come soon enough, to my mind. Yeah, well, but in particular, what I'm very keen that we seek to do is to get a million people on the streets of London just before Parliament takes these big decisions in the autumn, so that people are very well aware of the fact that, uh, uh, that the people uh, are, are resolute, you know, those people who, who believe our future is a European future, are resolute behind a people's vote. And this business about what, um, uh, what impact it has in Number 10, because I think that Theresa May is, 
is a weak leader who holds her views very weakly, that a lot of Conservative MPs are basically Remainers because they know it's the right thing for the country. I believe that a million people on the streets of London before a vote will have a big impact. Mm. When I worked in Number 10, uh, as I say, we had this big demo on, on Iraq, which had a big impact on most of us in, in Number 10 who, who, um, who, who weren't as resolute as, as, uh, as Tony Blair. But what I always remember each year is the one thing that had a huge impact in Number 10 was the rehearsals for Trooping of the Colour. Because they take place out in Horse Guards Parade, you know, literally Horse Guards, which is right next to number 10. And for some reason, which I've never understood, in Trooping of the Colour each year, they, they do the 1812 Overture, <laughs> complete with the cannons. And all the rehearsals, you have these cannons being fired towards number 10. And there's about a month when they're doing the rehearsals where you can't hold any meetings in the cabinet room because of all the cannons firing towards number 10, and they all have to be held in other parts of the building which, where, which are more sound insulated. What we need to do is have the metaphorical equivalent of the cannons firing at yeah. number 10 yeah. with the voice of the people, and I think that will have a big impact. OK, so make sure you're down in about October, November mm. time for that one. Um, and we've got time for another round. Yeah, the lady there with her hand up now, the mic is coming, and then two rows behind, I think someone has got their hand up, and then we'll come to one on this side as well. So, yeah, let's... Uh, thank you. So, I'm Jess Gold, and we actually met quite a few years ago when I was working for School Councils UK. I remember it well. Remember yeah, it? great great initiative, School Councils. <laughs> Democracy you. in schools, I'm, that's a really, really big idea. It is. I now, I've now gone more into my work as a musician and a climate change activist and a, a satirist. And about a year ago, I wrote a song called Boris & Co., because um, I see Boris as quite central to the problem of Brexit. And, uh, and I collected all the satirical cartoons of the time by Steve Bell and Gerald Scarf and put them all together in a video, and I've just tweeted it to you. <laughs> uh, so feel free to tweet it out and promote it, because okay. using songs and animation and everybody else, do look it up. It's called Boris & Co. I think you'll all okay. like it. Everyone will tweet it. Is, did you have a question? No. Oh, right. Okay, right. <laughs> Except clever, would you tweet the video? Very clever bit Thank of you. Uh, but, PR uh, but, but, my, um, but my answer is yes. Okay, you're going to get it retweeted. I think, yeah, the mic is now coming. For it's, This is a question, yeah? <laughs> sorry, this is, this is a question. Um, I, I'm sorry, um, Lord of Dennis, I was just wondering, so you say you're a democratic socialist, but, and you say that we're in a parliamentary democracy, but what is a parliamentary democracy but a manifestation of the will of the people? And so, regardless of how the people voted, if, even if you disagree with that, surely the people have, they have given a direct mandate to parliament of their will, and that is therefore parliament's duty to enforce. What makes any second referendum more legitimate than the first referendum, other than the fact that you might agree with the result. Okay, that's a good question. Um, yeah, on the, the the lady in the third row, I think, if the mic could come. Oh, you got it, brilliant. And then we'll we'll do it. Thank I you. We've got time for um, one more. You said you needed we needed to recalibrate the relationship with Europe in the light of the government's negotiation stances over the past couple of years and the duplicity and the arrogance that's gone with that. How do we even begin? to start changing the relationship with Europe and restoring our reputation there. Okay, so that, that's a good... The, the question about the, yeah. the democratic... Yeah. The, the crucial thing to understand about the referendum two years ago is it was not a referendum on a proposition <laughs> that could be implemented. There was no such thing as Brexit. There wasn't a treaty. There was no uh, arrangement as to what was going to happen to 
to trade, to all the, uh, the many forms of, uh, of formal and informal cooperation that take place with the European Union and all, and all of that. So there had to be, then, a proposition. Now, the right thing to have done, you see, because David Cameron is very culpable in this, the right thing to have done was actually what, ironically, Jacob Rees-Mogg and others who were arguing for a referendum before 2016, before David Cameron would give one, were arguing for, because they knew that there was a big problem in their democratic argument about a referendum, because what were people voting on? And Jacob Rees-Mogg was in favour of what he called, and David Davis supported this as well, the dual referendum. The dual referendum was a first referendum on the principle, which then leads to negotiations, and a second referendum on the actual proposition. Now, the, the, point, the point about the dual referendum is that the second stage is democratically democratically unavoidable because there has to be a democratic procedure for agreeing or not agreeing the treaty and the terms of disengagement from the European Union when they're negotiated. Uh, the alternative to not having a referendum is not that we have no democratic process at all, it's that Parliament decides, because we are a parliamentary democracy. So the debate actually which we're having is within much narrower confines than most people realise is what this whole meaningful vote thing is about. Nobody, but nobody, apart from Theresa May at the beginning, when she tried to assert that she could do the whole thing by the royal prerogative, and the Supreme Court chucked that one out immediately. That's what the Article 50 thing was about. Nobody believes that the government can simply agree and sign a treaty of such fundamental importance to the future of the country as the withdrawal treaty by decree. It can't be done that way. There has to be a democratic process for agreeing it amending it or disagreeing it. So the actual choice which we have in the autumn isn't between in or out, in a, you know, rerunning the referendum or not. The actual choice we have is between Parliament taking a decision whether to agree or disagree the treaty or the people taking that choice. Now, the point about agreeing or disagreeing is that dis something has to happen if you don't agree it. What happens if you don't agree it? Do we seek to renegotiate? Do we seek to uh, have another referendum on the fundamental principle? Do we refer the treaty to the people? These are all decisions that need to be taken. So what's the people's vote is the democratic logic of the referendum two years ago once you have a treaty. Now, when you say that what then about the vote two years ago, well, I can assure you we would not be going through this whole process of negotiating a Brexit treaty and trying to work out a credible proposition to put to Parliament or the people on Brexit if it weren't for the referendum two years ago. So what happened after the referendum two years ago is what should in a democracy quite properly have happened, which is that the executive which is then executing the will of Parliament and the people, is negotiating a Brexit treaty. What happens next is equally democratic, which is that there then has to be a democratic process for agreeing or not agreeing that treaty. The one thing you cannot say is that the referendum two years ago means that all subsequent decisions on Brexit are prejudged. That cannot be true in a democracy any more than that you say because one general election has been held and produced one result that we don't have any future general elections at all. And just as a point of democratic um, observation, if we have a referendum next year in 2019 on the treaty, it will have been three years since the 2016 referendum. That will be a longer interval than between the last two general elections, which was two years. So don't 
let's have any of this nonsense about somehow it be undemocratic for the people to take the subsequent decision following the referendum two years ago, which has to be taken democratically. It's absolutely democratic. It's a judgment call on the part of the House of Commons, though whether the right thing to do is for the Commons itself to take that decision or to refer it to the people. My judgment, actually partly because we had the referendum two years ago, my judgment is that the right way for that decision to be taken is by the people rather than just by the House of Commons. But the sovereign power in this country is the House of Commons and it can choose to go either way. Okay, and, and, and repairing relations with... Um, I don't or... think it's difficult to repair relations with Europe at all. We've got to have a leader who wants to repair relations with Europe. It's very simple. The reason we're in this mess is we've been appallingly led for the last 10 years. We had David Cameron, who was about as close to being a Brexiter as it was possible to be without actually being in favour of Brexit. He did more damage to our relations with Germany in particular in the whole way that he handled and interacted with Chancellor Merkel than any Prime Minister since Margaret Thatcher. Surprise, surprise, he couldn't even get the emergency break from her, which he desperately needed, as we now know, to win the referendum. So what we actually need now is a Prime Minister who is not rocket science, who seeks to maintain and to foster good relations with the President of France, the Chancellor of Germany, the European Union and the European Commission, the Prime Minister of Italy. It's not rocket science, this. That doesn't mean giving in to them. It just means behaving in a constructive, civilised and effective manner. Well, that is precisely why we have this person called the Prime Minister, is to do those things. Okay. We haven't had anyone who's done it but, for, for 10 years, and so we think it's slightly unusual, but it can okay, be done. It I can, can be done, you. and it depends who, who's leading. So yeah. let's get th uh, three more in. Uh, let's do uh, two from the side at, at the second row, and then if you... Uh, uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the two rows back immediately behind, and then we'll go to the side. Yeah. Uh, of, course, of course, obviously, you're very in favour of a second referendum or a people's vote, but... How would you know that it, that vote wouldn't just return a majority for Brexit, given that even with opinion polls pointing towards a narrow majority against Brexit, you, a second referendum would doubtless lead to the resurgence of UKIP, uh, the campaign would win over waverers, there would be charges of it being an undemocratic and cheating the will of the people, and it would reopen a lot of the barely healed wounds from the the 2016 election, how would you know that it would guarantee a majority for Remain? Mm. Do, do, do you think it would be lost, a second referendum? I hope it wouldn't be, but I'd be very nervous about it. Right, OK. Uh, and yes. you, oh, you've got the mic, great. And then we'll do one. Yeah, can you? Um, yeah, during the referendum, one of the major issues was immigration, uh, which is still a problem in Europe today. Um, assuming you have your way and re re remain in the re European, European Union, what would be the policy towards immigration? Mm, good question. I think you found on your listening mm. tour around mm. England this came it's up again issue. and again. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a both mm. good question. Uh, yeah, over, over, over here. Yeah, on the, on, on, the, on the right, just next. You can oh, see hello. that. Yeah. Hi, so I think as the first question alluded to earlier, um, the first referendum was obviously based on a lot of lies, a lot of deception. Everybody knows the big red bus with 350 million to the NHS. Um, and I wonder what we can do as ordinary people, as politicians, to ensure that the next referendum is based on more truth. Um, also, I know a lot of people voted as kind of a protest vote, um, and a lot of people not from London saw it kind of as a very London-centric. Um, I grew up in the southwest myself, which is obviously yeah. Brexit territory, um, and a lot of people voted um, 
not really knowing what was going on and just kind of protesting against kind of the London-centric <coughs> view of the country. And obviously the media played a big role as well. So mm. okay. what Thank can we you. Do? Andrew, why don't you take the first mm. and third mm. first, because mm. they're both about... A what might happen in a second mm. referendum, well, those, those and then the immigration issue. Yeah, if I may say so, those are really excellent questions because they go to the heart of what what might happen if there's a referendum. Obviously, I can't guarantee the referendum would be would be won. I mean, we're a democracy. Who knows? I mean, maybe that uh, the will of the people is to um, uh, when they actually see the Brexit terms is to Brexit. The reason I think I have a very great deal of confidence, though, that we can and deserve to, because this is the reason I think we deserve to win, is that the next referendum will be on a proposition. We will actually... There will be none of this 350 million on the side of the bus and all of that, because that will be obviously... It's not just that it's a lie. It won't be believed. I mean, you can get away with big lies in democracy if people believe them because they're credible, but it's not going to be credible because they've just agreed a £40 billion exit deal and, 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 and. You know, so uh, no impact on jobs, Airbus, BMW. So, you know, the, the facts will out. So I'm very confident that that the the support for it will reduce uh, for Brexit will reduce simply as it collides with reality, which is what's happening at the moment. But there are two other reasons why as well. The first is that the electorate will be substantially different in two years' time. We'll have a new generation of 18, 19-year-olds who've got the votes. Well, I can assure you from my meetings up and down the country, young people are overwhelmingly in favour of staying here. They do not want to be shut up behind borders with Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> well, at all. <laughs> So, uh, so I, th I, th I think I think I think let's move there. I think it's very likely that Parliament will decide because Parliament, as I say, decides the terms of the referendum. It's very likely Parliament will give the vote to 16 and 17-year-olds. They had it in the Scottish referendum. Scotland and Wales has already given the vote to 16, 17-year-olds. There's almost certainly a majority in the House of Commons now for votes for 16, 17-year-olds because quite a lot of Conservatives are in favour. 16 and 17-year-olds, as I know from visiting schools, they are just as strongly in favour of staying in the EU as the 18 and 19-year-olds. And also, one of the byproducts of Brexit is that more than a million, a million EU long-term EU residents in this country have taken citizenship. They all, they, all, they all turn up to my meetings up and down the country, and for them, remaining in the EU is existential. I mean, this is their whole being and future. I know how every single last man and woman of, of that group are going to vote. So add all that lot together, and in a referendum next year, there'll be nearly five million new voters who didn't vote last time, a million and a half are no longer with us at, at the other end. So it's going to be substantially... It, 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 Many, uh, many of the members of the House of Lords, I should say. <laughs> uh, and it's going to be a, a, a substantially new electorate. This, the other reason why I think we'll win, though, is this. In all of my experience of politics, this I just put this forward to you as a political proposition, the people who almost always, it's not invariably true, the people who almost always win political arguments, in my experience, are those who most want to win them. Uh, there's a, a, a set of complicated psychological reasons why that should be so. But what's very clear to me, and yesterday really reinforced it with that demo, is now, now, the people who most want to win this are those who want us to stay in Europe and not to become xenophobic and removed from our continent. That wasn't the case two years ago. The case mm. two years ago was the people who most wanted to win were the leavers. They were best organised, uh, they were most resolute, and lots of people, like me, because we all thought we were staying, we didn't exert ourselves. To my great shame, in the last referendum campaign, I only made one intervention, and that was at the last minute when I was asked to substitute for somebody in a debate against John Redwood. And I <laughs> said to this guy, who was, it was a debate in the city, oh, I, the idea of spending an evening with John Redwood, I said. <laughs> but, but, he, but he said, 
said to me, I've got no one else, he said. There's got to be somebody, he said to me, who's, who, who could actually just take him on in an argument. So I agreed to do it. Well, now, I have to tell you, it's terrible and horrible, but I'm, I spend a large part of my life closeted with Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> with Nigel Farage. I spend longer than them with many of my friends. <laughs> uh, all I can tell you, as I regard it as a great public service... And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, sorry, and, I've, I've, and, I've now and, forgotten what the other question the was. The question was on, on immigration, and yeah. I know you've told me that, you know, yeah. in your travelling around, yeah. this, it's a big issue. This, this comes up again and again. Yeah, it's a big issue. Well, uh, we need to do a much better job of explaining. The majority of immigration is outside the EU and uh, not inside. Uh, uh, the people don't have a, an unlimited right to work, that it's a regulated right to work. In particular, they've got to show they've got a job and all of that. We need to do all that. But my own view is that we need to re revisit one or two of the arguments of the past, but we need to be very resolute. I am strongly in favour of ID cards. We have got to know who is in this country. We've got to know who has a legal uh, right to access public services. Uh, do you know why we didn't have ID cards? Because of the combination of one or two of my friends on the far left and... David Davis, who ran this completely fraudulent argument that somehow our civil liberties were in danger if we had the same system of ID cards that virtually every other member state of the European Union has, and that we have ourselves if you want to drive a car or you want to travel abroad. We don't somehow think it's a great undermining of our civil liberties that in order to drive a car you have to have this thing called a driving licence or that to travel abroad you have to have this thing called a, a passport. Indeed, uh, it turns out that almost the entire, the single benefit of, of Brexit is that our passport is kind of a different colour. <laughs> so why should we have this big hang-up about the fact that if you're going to be a citizen of this country with all the obligations that go with citizenship, that you should have this thing called an ID card. And why should we have the ID card? It's not a great subversion of our liberties. There are, there are two very powerful reasons why you should have an ID card. Without ID cards, we do not know who is in this country because of our travel documents go back and forth, don't require people to travel on the same travel documents in and out. So we have no idea who's in and who's not in. And we also don't know has, who has a legal, legitimate right to access public services and jobs. And also, within the EU, if we have ID cards, we can do things that many of our European partners do that we don't do. So, for example, Belgium, which is the keeper of the holy grail of European integration, in Belgium, because they have ID cards, if you have not got a job a job within three months of coming into the, the country, you can be, and the Belgian government does, return people outside the country. We could do that. And the British people haven't been told that. Why? Because David Cameron didn't want to tell them that two years ago, because he was the guy who'd abolished Labour's scheme for ID cards in 2010. So let's cut all this crap and get real and take these real important decisions and let's not, for goodness sake, crash out of the European Union and wreck our trade and our international relations, all because we're not prepared to do something which virtually all of the other member states of the European Union do and is perfectly compatible with EU membership. OK, thank you very much. Um, we've, we've just about uh, run out of uh, time. Uh, I should mention... Uh, Caroline Lucas is here later, and you tweeted that she gave the best speech at the march yesterday. She was incredibly passionate about this big moral issue, about the duties that we owe and, and the solidarity that we share with fellow European citizens. Yeah. The best, best thing about the EU over the last 70 years is that there are no other 70 years in the history of Europe where France, 
what the countries which now comprise, the territories that now comprise, France, Germany, and Britain have been at peace and have shared continuous prosperity. Let's not throw that away. And that is what she said. Right. Well, she's here later. Uh, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury's here later, and I say we'll be talking about whether there should be a new centre party. Some of the themes that Andrew has been uh, exploring uh, during this talk will be explored later. And you haven't just spent your entire life with Jacob Rees-Mogg, you've also spent mm. some of it with Will Hutton, haven't you, uh -huh. writing this book? Yeah, and, uh, this, uh, it, it, it is in all good bookshops. However, I brought, a whole, <laughs> I brought a whole load of copies with me, and for a tenner they're yours, and all of the profits are going for to teenagers from deprived families to uh, study or volunteer uh, within the European Union. So it's a great cause, and okay. I'll, I'll sign them afterwards. So Andrew will be signing them outside. Thank you to Andrew. Thank you to all of you for brilliant questions and for coming on an early sun summer Sunday morning. Thank you all very much. Andrew, Andrew. So that was Andrew Adonis speaking at the Politics Festival a few weeks ago. I'll be at the Edinburgh Festival, and I hope to see some of you there, and all of you next week on the podcast. See you soon. Bye.